Good evening, sir. Well, it's good evening for you, but what about for our listeners? What if they're listening to this bright and early on Tuesday morning? <gasps> oh, fair point. It is a good evening for me. Good morning, listeners, and happy <laughs> mid-afternoon to you, Josh from Oregon. Yes, that's true with the time difference. You know, so I work in a 24-hour facility, and so we have shifts that start every two hours. And so pretty much it's somebody's morning all the time. And so the common greeting where I work is always good morning. It's We just assume it's morning, period. So good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I am great. Yeah, it the sun is shining in Oregon, and it has not gotten overly hot, which is great for my very pasty white Oregon skin. Uh, so I'm easing into the warmer temperatures, and my wife and I bought ourselves early anniversary gifts, and which were uh, personal kayaks. And so we've been out kayaking on a nearby lake and enjoying that. And so, yeah, it's. Did you get the hard shell or the inflatables? Oh no, we did. We did hard shell because we're too lazy to blow the things up every time. <laughs> but you, you guys kayak quite a bit, and I think. Do you guys have one of each? We have two of each. No, we have no hard shells. We have two inflatable kayaks that are two persons, and we have two inflatable paddle boards that are each function as a one-person kayak. Now, um, how do you feel about the like blowing it up and? and deflating it experience every single time you know especially with the paddle boards they are it's amazing i love it i love it i love it it takes us so we don't live very far from the lake we use all the time but we can be leaving our garage to on the lake including inflating the kayak in about 15 minutes so that's great that's amazing. I have to drive 30 minutes just to get to the, my closest lake. And then we just have to get ours off the roof rack and then we're ready to go. Mm-hmm. I have, so I have watched a number of people try to get a, attempt, particular people, people when they're alone, two people together can get them off the roof rack and it's fine. But I think when one person is trying to get the silly thing off the roof rack, it may be faster to inflate mine than for them to get it off the roof rack because it is not easy. It is not easy. Thankfully, I'm about six feet tall, which is just enough to get it off of our Tahoe. But putting it back on and putting the straps on is a little onerous, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I've loved the inflatable ones. I think they're great. And for... Uh, my wife, who goes almost every single day, the ease of being able to use the inflatable is just just wonderful. She loves it. Huh. I should have talked to you first. Oh, well. It's, We're having no, a great time. It's great. Well, and the downfall is if you want to do anything whitewaterish at all, it does not work. True. If you're doing a, even a river that has some motion to it, I'd be a little leery. Uh, of of the inflatables but so i think they're either way i don't think it's a uh this or that it's just they're both wins so i'm super excited that you got them i think that's awesome yeah we're having a blast but uh th- so that's how i'm doing how how are you 
Oh, I am tired. It has been a long, long week. Uh, my weekend started just about an hour and a half ago, and I am looking forward to savoring every minute of my weekend. Yeah, I totally hear that. Well, welcome but, to the uh, weekend. I am thrilled to be here, but uh, and delighted to start the weekend off by talking to you. So what is on your mind? What are we talking about today? Yeah, well, continuing with our theme of being outdoors and kayaking and whatnot, and honestly, it is just beautiful, and it is relaxing, and it's so nice to be out in nature. Um, and all mm. of that makes me think about natural revelation, how mm. the, the creation itself reveals the glory of God. And we're in the middle of our Summer in the Psalm series, and uh, we hope that all of our listeners are joining in and uh, participating. We are recording this right as we are just launching for our listeners. And so uh, we don't yet know how many people have chosen to participate, but uh, we hope you are joining in. You can get our reading plan through the show notes and on social media, so please join us. But in the book of Psalms, you know, Psalm 19, going back a couple of weeks ago for us now, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is a theme pronounced very specifically in Psalm 19, but it is evident throughout the rest of the Psalter and throughout the Bible, the idea that creation itself reveals something of God. And I would love to kick around the idea of like, what is it about God that we can learn solely from creation? If we had never seen the Bible, if we had never heard about Jesus, if we had never heard, what is it possible to even learn about God from creation? Hmm, this is a great question. I think a fascinating conversation topic. So when I think of natural revelation, there are really only two passages in Scripture that come to mind. Psalm 19 that you just referenced, and honestly, that one comes to mind second. The primary text that comes to mind for me is Romans chapter 1, where it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Hmm. So those two passages are pretty much the entirety of what I think of when I think of natural revelation. Are there other texts that come to mind for you? You know, obviously there's the creation passage itself, that kind of comes to mind, or if I was really trying to pull for other texts. But honestly, we are thinking of the exact same two texts. And that okay. Romans 1 text is particularly challenging for me because Paul indicates that what can be known from natural revelation is sufficient enough to hold humanity accountable on some level. And that's jarring to me. I find a lot of worship and adoration of God through nature, but I know who that God is through Scripture. So if we take Scripture out of it, 
what is it I'm being held accountable to? What is it that I can actually know of God? Yeah, no, this is exactly it. You know, I was thinking back on, so I grew up in a very conservative, reformed tradition. We've talked about that in the podcast before. And uh, the phrase I grew up with was, natural revelation is not sufficient for salvation, but it is sufficient for damnation. Oh, that's right. That's heavy. That is very heavy. And that that's a very Calvinist thing to say. And, and I, I don't lean that direction. Absolutely. Uh, so that's, that's hard for this Armenian to swallow or non-Calvinist. I don't, I don't know that I would say Armenian, but anyway. Well, let's, let's at least go with Armenian. Armenian would be a nationality, I think. Oh, (laughs) you are so (laughs) right. Oh, that's embarrassing. Uh, proceed. All right. But, uh, yeah, no, but it, the quote, while I don't love its formulation, does speak to what I was taught about natural revelation. You know, I have always seen natural revelation presented as a validation for eternal consequences, whereas you brought up a very different topic that I think is very interesting, which is how does natural revelation give us a context for worship? Yeah. Uh, and those, just the feel of that as a conversation topic is very different to me. Well, and it seems like we're having both conversations in parallel here. There, mm-hmm. And, you know, even the two texts that we point to show that, that the Bible is having these conversations in parallel. You know, on the one hand, the Psalm 19 passage is very much a worshipful tone that is evident through creation, and it sets the mood almost for worship. But then you have the Romans 1 passage that seems to indicate that there is, can I say it this way? There is something theological that creation has to teach us, and if we're not listening, we're held accountable to not listening to that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and if I'm reading Romans 1 correctly, not only does it— are we held accountable? But the second half of it is, and no one's listening. Seems Uh, to be the second point that Romans 1 is trying to make. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm rereading The Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien. And there is a throwaway line in there that really caught my attention this time. And it was something like, to corrupt ears, even the truth has a wry face. Hmm. I mean, that's almost, wh- where is that from, right? To the pure, all things are pure. To those who are defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure. Yeah, but I think it even... I, mean, I, I have s- to be honest, I, I only know that because of Rebecca St. James, not because of the Bible, but you know. <laughs> um, that's why we sing know. scripture. Okay, that's a whole different episode, but seriously, <laughs> song, Absolutely. I mean, why do you think we learned our ABCs to a song? Why do you oh, think so we true. learned so many other things to a song? Music drives this stuff home. So thank you, poor Bishop Hooper, for putting the Psalms to music so that we could internalize them. Um, Absolutely. Well, and thank you to David as we think about this topic of natural revelation. I know it's not helping us in the same way, but I'm so grateful for the poetic 
exploration of natural revelation, set aside the sort of argumentative exploration of natural revelation in Romans chapter one. I'm yes. I'm grateful for the worship version that can be the lyrical version as we explore this topic, because I think they need to go hand in hand. They absolutely do. And I think there is a sense of awe and wonder that even people who do not follow Jesus have when in the presence of a beautiful setting of creation, whether it's a sunset, whether it's a beach, whether it's some hike or some vista or you know a series of other beautiful places on this earth. I think people get into those spaces and they have a sense of reverence, but they often misattribute that reverence to something hard to define, something like Mother Earth, mm. rather than acknowledge there is both a vastness and an intricacy present in creation that signifies something greater than myself is here and has made this and has put this together. And whoever and whatever that is has a power that I must, on some level, respect. And I think that's the beginning of understanding that there is somebody above me, there is more to this world than just me, and if I could find out who or what that is, should consider giving it my allegiance. Yeah, as you were talking, the two things that came to mind were, number one, the 12-step language of a higher power, mm. which is entirely accurate, but entirely vague at the same time, right? There's nothing incorrect about calling God a higher power. He sure. is, in fact, that. <laughs> but he's there's more to know about him than that. And in the same way, when Paul was in Athens— when he addresses the folks at whatever that building is called, the Areopagus, is that right? And refers to the altar of the unknown God, surely creation should at least bring us to that point. There is a deity here, and that deity is a higher power. And maybe even bring us to the point of acknowledging, I don't know anything else about him, it, them, but I know it's not me, and I know that, I mean, he must be a creator, a maker, an artist. Right. Well, and here's, yeah, I love what you said a moment ago about it's not untrue to call God a higher power. He is at least that, but there's more to know here. But it's fascinating to me, no matter how much we learn of God, the same statement is true. At least mm. what I have learned is true of God, but there is more to learn here. That will always be true when God is the subject. Yeah, now I'm like stuck in the Lion King. There's more to see than can ever be seen. Um, <laughs> uh, but This is a great opportunity to bring back the musical <laughs> version of On the Phone with Josh. That would be detrimental. Uh, but... <laughs> But yeah, but you know, I, I maybe five minutes ago, I wanted to ask you this and I got distracted. I, I want to jump into personal experience for a moment. Can you tell me about a time when you have encountered God through nature and what that was like for you? 
Ooh, I'm having a hard time choosing one. Because you mentioned you mentioned in our beauty episode that you specifically connect with God through nature, and so that's why I wanted to add that as a as a fixed point in our conversation. Right. It is such a touchstone for me that I connect with God in nature. And so I have like four stories, and I don't know what's to pick. So I'll give you the setting and you pick them. There's on top of a mountain, there's at the beach, there's in the woods, or at a waterfall. Ooh, then I want to hear the waterfall one. So I was on a hike. Shelly was nervous about letting me do this hike, but it was a four-day hike that circumnavigated Mount Hood. And unfortunately, that hike has a section that was washed out. So technically, you're not supposed to do this hike anymore. You can do about 90% of it, but there's a, a spot that like the, the trail is gone. It's been washed out. And it's, there's really no safe way to get down one canyon and up the other side. And I can now attest to the fact that there is no safe way to do that. <laughs> uh, however, I did do it. And anyway, but while on that four-day backpacking trip around Mount Hood, I went to a local waterfall, uh, one of the waterfalls around there, and it was amazing. It was a great opportunity to sit in front of this waterfall. I was able to get there early in the morning before most people would ever arrive in the area. And I read some Psalms and I prayed and I sang and I sang How Great Thou Art really, really loud, only to discover like a few minutes later that some hikers came up behind me. And it was after I was done singing, but like I was loud enough that I'm like, huh. <laughs> but at whatever mm -hmm. but it was it was just a great moment of being still in the woods staring at a waterfall and seeing just this beautiful quiet setting and you know how is it Elijah or Elisha I can't I can never remember which they are in the cleft of the rock and like the thunderstorm comes and all the different things happen but it's God shows up in a whisper it's those still small voice moments, be still and know that I am God. I find that I can be still when all around me is also still. And the mm. sound of running water or the woods or the birds chirping or whatever, even though it is itself noise, it is a stilling, quieting noise where God's voice just seems to be easier to hear and God's presence seems to be easier to feel. That makes total sense. So what, you know, you, you asked at the beginning what it is we can come to understand about God through nature. How would you have described God from your experience of that moment? That's the goofy thing for me. I don't know how to separate that moment from my broader relationship with God. I came into that moment with a knowledge of who he is through his revealed word and through faithful ministers of his word and through an ongoing relationship that I've had with him most of my life. I don't know, independent of all of that, what that moment would have meant because I didn't live that type of a moment. 
And so I, I have a hard time separating it, which is why this topic is so confusing for me, because how would I stand at that waterfall and know God? I would know maybe a piece of God. And I guess, like I said before, even still, I only know a piece of God, but I just don't get it. I don't get what I would learn independent of Scripture. You know, and, and I think this is a major point that any artwork that you experience gets richer the more you consider both the artwork and the more you get to know the artist. Mm. You know, I have certain artists that I really love. One of them does these funky light sculptures that he's just making light happen. Uh, His name's James Terrell. And he's absolutely my all-time favorite artist. He's not a Christian. But I've watched several interviews with him, and he is seeking the transcendent in his art. That sense of stillness that you encounter as a spiritual experience, that sense of encounter that you have, he's trying to produce that experience with his art as a secular person. Knowing that about him makes the art so much richer for me because I know what it's trying to do. And I know a little bit about the artist himself. On some level, I don't think we should try to differentiate because what you get to experience in nature with the depth of relationship you have with God, I think is the better, richer, fuller thing, right? Yeah, I definitely think it is. It's definitely richer and more full. So clearly the gospel is necessary. Clearly our scriptures are necessary in order to produce that fuller experience. But you have me wondering, I'm still pondering your question about what it is we would what what it is we could learn about God directly from nature. And your analogy with an artist is really helpful because that artist finds light to be transcendent. But if we looked at the vastness of creation, I think one one thing we could learn about God just from nature is he loves beauty, he loves order, he loves harmony, he loves both vastness and intricate details. Like I'm thinking like really microscopic animals and small things that creep through the forest and large animals in the forest and humanity and things like mountains and oceans that are just so vast we can't even describe them. And then the stars and and the mysteries. Maybe we could discover that he loves mystery. I don't know. I feel like there are still things about his character, or at least what he loves and appreciates, that we can learn. But why am I held accountable to that information? So is this really a question of justice? Is that really what you're asking? Is it fair to be held accountable for that information? Yeah, I think on some level I'm asking that. 
But maybe I'm asking for what's the positive side? Like, I would not ascribe to the the Calvinist statement you gave earlier. It's not sufficient for salvation, but it is sufficient for damnation. I don't think there is another way other than through Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus very clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I completely agree. But if there is something to be learned of God through creation, can we know enough about God to come to saving faith in God through creation. I I think that's what I'm striving for in all of my ruminations, because I just don't sign on to a theology that says God would create something that is sufficient only for damnation, but not for salvation. Well, and I think what both that phrasing of it and what much of our conversation here misses out on is, is the reality of the way in which our universal sinfulness infects our ability to think rightly, I might land on saying something like, if it were not for the damaging effects of sin on a thinking person's ability to assess the universe, that thinking person potentially would be able to get there. So the problem is not with the revelation in nature, but with our capacity to interpret that information without some added thing that I think specific revelation, the Bible, the incarnate God in Christ provides because we had lost our ability to pick up on the world around us. Again, not not through any fault of God's. So I think I can buy that. I think I'm like following along. So is that what you think Paul is saying when, as you summarized, nobody's listening? I, I very much think the argument Paul is making in Romans 1 through 3, I think he's addressing this exact topic. He's saying there are people, the Jews, who have, at his point in history— special revelation. And there are people who don't have special revelation. That's the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are culpable, so to speak, because they have this natural revelation, but through the darkening of their own hearts and minds, they have lost the ability to pay attention to it. And the Jews are culpable because they have had special revelation and squandered it. And therefore, we get to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That would be my general reading of the first movement of Paul's thought. Yeah, no, I completely agree with your reading of it. It's really nice to put that back in context of the role of natural revelation and to say that It is the effects of sin which dulls our capacity to see God rightly through creation. It's not some inherent insufficiency in creation itself to reveal God. Which, on a theological level, when our theology doesn't seem to be fitting right, one of the things I have noticed more and more over time is that I have to ask myself, am I playing with all the pieces? Hmm. 
is there another theological piece that I'm missing, like my own sinfulness in this situation, the harming effects of sin? You know, I, I think sometimes we're trying to piece our theological puzzle together without having the pieces, and then we then we get frustrated with God or ourselves or the Bible when the real honest answer is we just are still students and have a lot more to learn and a lot more big pieces to hold on to. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate this conversation because I think it has reframed it really well for me, and it helps me to put both halves back together, honestly, because now I see why I can't see God clearly through creation without special revelation, scripture, incarnate word, whatever. I need scripture and the incarnate word to enlighten me and help me to understand what I have been too dull to see in creation. And it's therefore why I'm able to connect with God in creation. There is mm. that revelation has always been there, but I needed the windows of my heart to be opened so that I could see it and experience it for what it really is, what it has been all along. But because Ooh. of my sinfulness, I needed that that sin cleared out so that I could experience it rightly. That's really good. And I would even broaden it out, not just my sinfulness, but my sinfulness and brokenness. And you weren't trying to imply that what I'm just going to describe as sin. You just weren't thinking about this, I think. Uh, my own anxiety issues, for example, mm. are not a sin issue in my life, though they are ultimately a result of sinfulness in the world, I'm sure. But my own anxiety issues can limit my ability to experience God in creation unless the windows of my heart are opened and mm. I learn how to do that again. Mm. Um Man, I like that analogy. The the windows need to be opened. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm reading the two towers. And in the part of the book that I'm in right now, the Ents are coming alive and are showing mm. up to the battle. And many of these Ents, as Treebeard says, have, have become too tree-like. They have almost forgotten their Entishness. And I don't know, all of that revival imagery is kind of coursing through my mind as through both our conversation and through reading this book. And so, yeah, I, I love the idea that, that God comes and revives us in some way to restore our understanding of Him, our understanding of creation, our understanding of who we truly are, and putting all these pieces back together. Mm, that's so good. And a... And, uh... That's a world I want to live in. Yes. I want to be in the world where the beauty of the world and the glory of God are mutually enlightening realities that continually draw me higher and higher. Yes. It's why I love to hike. It's why we bought kayaks and are going out on the lake. It's why we go to the beach yeah, these things are very well connected in my mind. That's really good. Mm. Well, I want to turn to our listeners and say, you know, put this podcast down, go outside or take us with you. That's fine too. 
yes. but my wife listens to our podcast on her kayak almost every week, by the way. Yes. She texted me a picture from the lake and said, I'm listening to your beauty episode from the lake. And here's my view. It's <laughs> perfect. Uh, it was so great. But yeah, uh, so to take us with you, go out into nature. But if we're a distraction, honestly, listen to God's voice however you can. But we encourage you to join us in our Summer in the Psalm series. Immerse yourselves in this beautiful poetry and engage with God however you can. Just immerse yourself into his world. So once again, find our reading plan in the show notes or on Facebook. Just look for On the Phone with Josh. We would love to connect with you. And then leave some comments on this link or on any of our episode posts. We would love to hear from you. How do you connect with God in nature? What do you find revealed about who God is through experiencing him in nature? We would love to be inspired by that and see God more clearly through it. That's exactly right. I I am so curious to hear other people's thoughts or even just to see pictures of their favorite bits of nature. Yes. Yes. Mm, So good. But all right. Absolutely. We've been in this Summer in the Psalms series, and we have theoretically been seeing God through the pages of his word. So I would love to hear from you, Josh from Missouri. What have you been thinking about in this Summer in the Psalms series? You know, what I've been thinking about actually matches our topic today really powerfully. Mm. Um, I have told you before, I have. I, there's always one book in my life that is always the best book I've never read. <laughs> Right. And this was up until recently, it was uh, The Contemplative Pastor by Eugene Peterson. I am taking a swing at another one of these books right now that I am embarrassed to acknowledge that I've never read, which is The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. I've read the first half five times, and I've never actually finished it. (laughs) Um, But in actually this exact set of verses, uh, Psalm 19, Willard is talking about what he calls our God-soaked world. And he talks about the fact that the language that is used here in Psalm 19 is not what we think it is. We think of it as something that is far off, whereas in Jesus' mind, it was something that was very immediate. So the idea that Willard is presenting is that, number one, we need to correct our understanding of God, because one of the things we should understand from creation is that God is joyful. No God is going to design all this stuff without being a joyful God. He talks about the cat's eye nebula that is millions of miles across, and that there is beautiful sculpted artwork millions of miles across that is clouds of gases with light refracting from it and uh, with all of that uh, you're not doing that if you're not a joyful god but on the flip side of this the heavens are not far off in jesus mind The heavens are right here, right now. And so the joyful God is always right here, right now. 
and that somehow we are still living in a world that is more influenced by our modern and modernist assumptions of sort of a spiritual vacuum than they are the world of Jesus, where we are actually living in the very midst of a joyous God every minute of every day. And Mm. that was just so striking to me. Yeah. I often forget how near God really is. And when you say joyful, there's a lot of energy in that word. There's a lot of Mm. excitement, right? Maybe I find God's nearness to be scary or to be, you know, he's accessible, sure. But having that energy and that joyfulness, maybe playfulness, maybe happiness or a lot of different other things you could throw in there, that changes the idea quite a bit. Doesn't it? Yes, that's exactly the point that I think struck me is, you know, to simplify the thought down from Dallas Willard's genius to what I can handle, uh, God is joyful and he is here. Mm. And those are not thoughts, I think, in context with one another. And his argument is the Psalms help us put those thoughts back together. Mm. So that is what I have been thinking about. Uh, It was super fun to be reading that book and run across Willard's thoughts on the Psalms since we've been spending so much time on that. But what about you? What have you been thinking about as far as the Psalms go? Okay, so you were like so perfectly in tune with our conversation, and I am so perfectly not in tune. This thought from the Psalms I struggled with. I really struggled with this week. So as you know, I'm reading a commentary on the Psalms that is only a commentary of, I think, 10 select Psalms that the authors identify as lament Psalms. And I was reading along in our reading plan, and I came to Psalm 39. I read through Psalm 39. I read it a couple different times, and I'm like, this is jarring, and I don't know what to do with this. Man, I sure hope this is one of the 10 of these 150 psalms that these authors actually address. And lo and behold, it was. So I ditched the chapter I was reading, uh, the part of the commentary that I was reading, and I jumped over to 39, and I read the whole section on 39, because I'm like, I got to soak up every drop of what these guys have to say, because I am lost. 39... Mm. It's so, so, and so I encourage our listeners, I mean, I know it was part of this week's reading plan, but it, I'm sure you don't have it right up front. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but it just seems like he starts off by saying, hey, I'm going to be silent in the presence of the wicked. That's my commitment. And so then I did, and then I got all hot and bothered, and I couldn't han- handle it anymore. And what I did with that was to say, hey, God, teach me to number my days which I'm like, what? How, how does that have to do with anything? And uh, yeah, because we're just a wisp. It, we're here and then gone again, and it's not going to be good. Uh, so we're just, we're, we have these really short lifespans. Yeah, but I hope in you, uh, you're my hope, which you expect to see in the Psalms. And then he says, save me from all my sins. And then I, I used to be silent, and then I spoke. And now, you know what? Just look away from me. In fact, he ends the prayer 
with verse 13. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. Psalm over. And I'm like, what? This, this is not how these psalms normally end. God, stop looking at me. I'd like to have a little bit of fun before I die. Thank you. Whoa. And so I don't know. I, I still don't know. I even read the smart people and they helped a little, but I, I'm still very baffled by this. So here's all of this. I'm leading up to this one thought. Uh, you know, I've talked on the podcast before about the word Yahweh being translated as Lord in all caps. These authors choose to translate Yahweh as I am. So as I read this quote, you will hear that. And so um, here we go. This is what they said at the very end in the conclusion after they've done all of their analysis. And I really appreciated this. It says, after seeking forgiveness from I am, David petitions I am to turn his holy gaze away from him, unable to stand under the scrutiny of his holy gaze. David wants it both ways, and the tension is unsustainable. This tension between seeking divine presence and distance is shattered on the cross, where Jesus suffers complete abandonment, when, quote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, and members of the covenant community could stand in I am's presence without fear, clothed in Christ's righteousness. I just loved this quote because I see David's wrestling here. Forgive me, you're my only hope. Turn away from me. I'm really sick of your gaze that I can't even stand. Like these two, I want you close and I'm scared to have you nearby and I'm scared to have you look upon me. I'm too sinful. These two things living in tension within David. And then all of that is abolished on the cross. Jesus took all of that and paid for it all so that we could stand in God's presence. You know, in the words of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, like with confidence, with boldness. I appreciated that whatever David's going through, we don't have to. Wow, that is a lot. I'll be honest. I am glad that thought went on to the podcast because as you were reading, I felt like I needed to rewind and re-listen. Uh, I am really looking forward to being able to hit back 30 seconds, which isn't something you get to do in real life, but you do get to do when you're recording a podcast with someone. So, uh, man... That is a rich, deep, and profound suite of thoughts, and I am looking forward to meditating more on them. Mm. Yes. Well, and let me make this just my plug then. We have chapter markers now in our podcast. So there's always a chapter marker at the beginning of each of our thoughts, at the beginning of our main topic, and a chapter marker marking where the Witch Josh question starts. So use those chapter markers. Oh, yeah. And speaking of, there needs to be a chapter marker right now, because <laughs> we are going into the Witch Josh question for the week. All right. Lay it on me. I can't wait. All right. Here it is. Which Josh recently thumb wrestled with a table saw? <laughs> One, two, three, four. I declare the ER. Yeah. 
And that, of course, would be me. And my thumb is still recovering. What uh, did you do? So this is so frustrating. I have been redoing my deck for the entire two years that we have owned this house. And I had one piece left. Oh, no. One. Just one. One single piece. And one of the cuts just wasn't fully straight. And I wanted to just shave a tiny little bit off to straighten the cut out a little bit. Ah. And I successfully shaved that bit off. But because of the curve that I had accidentally cut into it, it slipped out of my fingers and I was pushing it through the saw. So my finger went towards the saw, my thumb did, and the pad of my thumb cut into the saw, but I pulled it back. I never even had to go to the hospital. I did not get stitches. I am entirely okay, but boy, I'm a week out of that having happened. And every time I bump my thumb on something, it still hurts. Ah. Uh. Man, okay, so that's two Witch Josh questions that have included sharp things harming your own hands. Is yes, this... I am very clumsy. <laughs> You've got to stop with the sharp objects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did tell my wife that I was never using, this is an old school table saw. The newer ones have some safeguards on them. Uh, this is like my grandfather's table saw that has nothing safe about it. And I did tell my wife that I was not going to be using it anymore. Hmm. I ha still have five digits on each hand, and I would like to, to keep it that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, while you go out and buy a table saw, I'm ready to prepare for another episode next week. All right. Well, I look forward to talking to you. I'll catch you then, okay? All right. Take care. All right. Bye.